was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper. A woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil, and she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. But when his disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. But when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, but me you do not have always. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. She did it for my burial. So today, let's take a few moments to talk on the subject of take care of my burial. Take care of my burial. At the end of the blockbuster movie, The Black Panther, T'Challa, who is also known as the Black Panther, he defeats his cousin and arch enemy, Eric Killmonger, in hand-to-hand combat. Before dying, T'Challa takes Killmonger up on a mountaintop so that he might be able to view the beauty of Wakanda one last time. And in his final words, Killmonger says to T'Challa, Just bury me in the ocean with my ancestors that jumped from the ships because they knew death was better than bondage. So he said, bury me in the ocean, in the sea. What the movie fictionalized, the Bible articulates as fact. It was not uncommon for people in the Bible associated with royalty to predetermine where they wanted to be buried. So as Killmonger said, bury me in the ocean, because he was a royal character in the fictional depiction of the Black Panther. When we read the Bible, people of royalty, people of means, determine in advance where they want to be buried. If we go to Genesis chapter 49, we can read these words, Genesis chapter 49. And I'll begin reading at verse 29. Then he, speaking of Jacob, charged them, speaking of his children, and he said to them, I am to be gathered to my people, bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field of Ephron the Hittite as a possession for a burial place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I, Jacob, buried Leah. The field and the cave that is there that were purchased from the sons of Heth. And when Jacob had finished commanding his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. So there you have an aged man who's been transported from Canaan into Egypt. 
he knows he's about to die. So he says to his sons, when I die, take me back to Canaan and bury me in the plot that my grandfather and my father are buried in. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 50, verse 24, and Joseph said to his brethren, I am dying. But God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land of which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. So turn over to Exodus chapter 13. I'm going somewhere. I'm trying to lay a case here for you. As I mentioned, Jacob is in Egypt. He's about to die. And he says to his sons, one of which is Joseph, when I die, take me back to Canaan and bury me there. The Bible goes on to say in Genesis 50, we didn't read that, but when Jacob died, Joseph asked Pharaoh for permission to go back to Canaan to bury his father there. Pharaoh not only gave permission, but Pharaoh came as well into Canaan to this field that Abraham purchased, and he attended the burial of Jacob. Now, Joseph is about to die, and he's saying to the children of Israel, when I die, take my remains from Egypt and take them back into the land of Canaan. So in Exodus chapter 13, beginning at verse 19, this is after 400 years of slavery. That Israel has been in Africa. Egypt is in Africa. They've been enslaved in Egypt for 430 years. Moses leads the exodus, the exit out of Egypt to the promised land. The land that was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob where they are buried. And as Moses leads the children of Israel out, the Bible says in verse 19, and Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. How are those bones still around? He had been embalmed by the Egyptians. The Israelites didn't embalm, but the Egyptians did. So his bones have not decomposed to the place of dust, but they're still there. And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had placed the children of Israel under solemn oath. God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here with you. So as they are leaving Egypt after 430 years of bondage, Moses remembers what Joseph said before they were enslaved. Get my bones. Take them out of this place. So my question to you is, why did the patriarchs, take so much care and concern about where they would be buried. Why was this so important to them? Because it really doesn't seem to be important to our culture. We don't really think about it much at all, but it was on their minds. Why is this important to them? Well, number one, they wanted to be buried in the land of Canaan because that was the land that God promised to Abraham, and that was the land that God had given to the Jews. The land of Canaan was their home and their legacy, not Egypt. Egypt was not their home. Egypt was not their legacy. Canaan was. 
Egypt was the land of bondage. Canaan is the land of grace and freedom. So to be buried in Canaan meant that their bodies would be free and always remain in the land. Because they knew the children of Israel were going to be back in that land. They didn't know it was going to be a 400-year detour. And so the patriarch said, we want our remains in the land that God gave to our ancestors. So for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, three generations, for them to be buried there, it shows their belief in the fact that God promised that land to Israel. Secondly, the reason why they wanted to go back was that the patriarchs wanted to be buried with their family. To rest alongside of your family was a sign of love and solidarity. It was the last picture of family togetherness. Whenever my mother passes and, and she may go up to meet Jesus, Jesus may come back today in the air and snatch up those of us who are alive. But if he should tarry and my mother passes, she has a plot right next to my father's plot. She knows where she will be buried. I was speaking with one of our members last week, and he was saying how his father's grave has already been marked. His dad is there, and the place next to the father is reserved for his mother or the father's wife. So there are some of us who know exactly where we're going to be buried, even though we don't know when we're going to die. And when we do that, that's a sign of family togetherness, of family being buried together. Third, not only was the land promised to the descendants of Abraham, and not only was being buried there a sign of family togetherness, but Abraham purchased a portion of the land from the Hittites. Now, don't miss this. We saw it. We read it in Genesis 49 that, that Abraham purchased a portion of the land of promise from the Hittites. Now, it's their land because God said, I'm going to give it to you. Well, how can God give them the land when the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites, all of them are already living there? Well, the earth is the Lord's and everything that's in it. He can give it to whom he chooses to give it to. It doesn't belong to those people. It belongs to God and whom God gives it to. So he says to Israel, I'm going to give you this land, but you will have to fight for it. You know, you got a promise, but you got to fight for it in order to acquire it. But I'm with you because this is the land that I've given to you. So when Abraham, before Israel got the land, because when Abraham's walking the earth, they're not a numerous people yet. Remember, God told Abraham, your descendants are going to be like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore, on, 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 on the ground. And so at this time, he, he doesn't even have a child. So when he begins to bargain for land that God had promised, he said, let me purchase this field so that I can bury my wife Sarah in. Because Sarah had passed. And so he goes to the Hittites and said, let me buy a field. And all of this is found, listen to this strong tower, in Genesis chapter 23. One whole chapter in the Bible is dedicated to a real estate purchase. Genesis 23, the whole chapter is dedicated to Abraham attempting to purchase the land from the Hittites. This is very important, obviously. God gives a whole chapter of it in the Bible. Listen to this. The Hittites say, we respect you. So we'll give you 
the field and the land and the cave that you want. We'll give it to you. Abraham says, no, 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 I want to pay for it. In other words, he's not a Christian relying on a hookup. Uh, we got some Christians that don't want to pay for nothing. <laughs> I'll leave that alone. <laughs> I, I, I'll pay for it. They, they go back and forth, and they keep saying, here, please take it. And he's like, no, I'll pay for it. So once they saw he, would pay for, he, he wouldn't take their gift, the Bible says he measured out to them 400 shekels of silver, and he paid for the land. And then the Bible says in Genesis 23, two times, he got the deed to the land. Why is that important? Because gifts that people give you freely today can be taken away from you legally tomorrow. And Abraham had enough wisdom to know how things work. And he said, I better get a legal deed to this land because there may be some people who are going to descend from the sons of Heth who don't feel about my people the way their ancestors feel about my people. But we're going to have this deed in our hand in case people have a problem with it. And that's part of the battle we were dealing with in Franklin because the daughters of the Confederacy talked about how they had been given the center parcel in the city of Franklin. So therefore, uh, you can't put no signs up here talking about black history right around the Confederate monument, or, or should I say the Confederate uh, uh, altar and idol. You can't put signs. It's, this is our land. Well, show us the deed. Uh, we don't have a deed. We just had word of mouth from the good old boy system. Well, if you don't have a deed, we putting signs up around this bad boy. <laughs> and we did. And there's a statue coming. We'll talk about that another Sunday. And so we see that Abraham purchased that land. So that was Israel's land. As they were waiting on the promise to be fulfilled, that purchase spot. To bury Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob belonged to them. And they wanted their people buried in that land. And they determined this beforehand. While they were alive, they made their will known, their will, bury me back home. Have you thought about where you want to be buried? Because if you haven't, that means your loved ones are going to have to make a decision. But help them out. By saying, this is where I want to be buried. I've never had to think about that. Me neither. But if I read the Bible and I look at it, they thought about it before they died. So why don't we think about it? And before I segue and close with how God the Father thought about Jesus' burial, let me throw a question out to you. What about cremation? What about cremation? That, 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 that's a hot potato topic. That's controversial. There are many Christians who say you should not cremate the remains of your loved ones. But what does the Bible say? Well, based on what I've studied, there is not one direct mandate for or against cremation in the Bible which means you are free to cremate your loved ones or for you while you're alive to say, I want to be cremated because there's no Bible passage that is for it or against it, which means you're free to do it if you have the faith to do it. 
Romans 14 talks about disputable matters between uh, Christians. Disputable matters. Things that Christians just argue about and have different opinions about. And uh, Paul talks about how when Jews and Gentiles got together in the church, you had Jewish people who didn't eat certain foods, and you had Gentiles who would eat anything. So the early church did a lot of fighting over food. And so Paul said, look, the person that can eat anything shouldn't look down on the person who only eats vegetables. And the person who only eats vegetables shouldn't judge the person who eats anything like something wrong with them. This is a disputable matter. Show love to each other and have diversity in the midst of your unity. You can have differences without dividing over secondary issues. Don't make a secondary issue a primary issue. The primary issue is the body and blood of Jesus Christ, the person and work of Jesus. For that, I'll die. But I'm not dying over, uh, can I have an earring? Can I wear a tattoo? Uh, whatever the secondary stuff that Christians always, can I listen to this kind of music? Can I go to that kind of movie? Can, oh, come on, man. Later for that kind of stuff. Stop making secondary things primary things. So as he told that church then, he's telling them now. And I've talked to Christians who are against cremation. And when I say, show me in the Bible, they start making stuff up. If you have faith to cremate or be cremated, do it. And here's another thing too. When you look at the cost of funerals today, It's cheaper to cremate. I told somebody the other day, we were somewhere, I was with Darina, and uh, I said, you know, it's cheaper to keep her. I was talking about my wife, you know, it's cheaper to keep her. But it's cheaper to cremate. <laughs> and if your finances are already stretched, that's a viable option for some families. Okay. So let's not judge people. Now, let's dig a little deeper, though. The Bible does say in 1 Samuel 31, verse 12, that Saul and his sons were burned. Their bodies were burned. They were cremated. Again, that's not saying that the Bible is for cremation. You can't take one verse out of context to make it support what you want. But this verse is there for people who say it can never happen. Wow, King Saul was burned. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 that if I give my body to be burned, what's that all about? Christians were being martyred and burned at the stake. And so somebody will say, you know, those real holy, self-righteous, ultra-conservatives, well, they were burned against their will and their body went to ashes. But the body went to ashes. And whether you're cremated or not, the body is going to go to what? God told Adam, look here, man, you sinned against me. Not only will you work with sweat coming down your face, but your body is going to go back to the earth from which it came. You were made from earth. You're going to go back to earth. So when I'm at a burial site and before the casket goes down, I say earth to earth, ashes to ashes. But here's the good news. Those ashes are going to be resurrected when it's time to meet Jesus Christ. No matter where you die, 
The Bible even says the sea is going to give up the dead. God will find your ashes. And these are ashes that have been around for thousands of years. That have not disintegrated. But God knows where the ashes are. Now, if Jezebel was a believer, we'd have some problems. If Jezebel was a believer. Why? Because the dogs ate her. So imagine if she was a believer and the dogs ate her, how are you going to get them ashes? <laughs> From the excrement. <laughs> God can work through some mess. Listen, if he knows how to pull your ashes together, can't he pull things together in your life? I mean, come on. Where's our faith at? It, oh, God, you, you know what I'm going through. You know what I have need of before I ask. Let me stop acting like you don't know what's going on. or You're up in heaven wondering how you're going to make this thing work out. No, no, it's already done. You know the end from the beginning. You predetermine everything, and you allow us to have free will, yet you're in control. It's a mystery, but I'm going to trust your heart when I can't see your hand. I'm going to trust your heart when I don't understand your mind. My theology is going to hold me when life is tossing me to and fro. And so, yes, there's cremation, but above all, let's look at this. Everything God is going to do, he's already done. God does not react in time. He predetermined everything in eternity past before he even made the world. He knows the end from the beginning because he predetermined the end before the beginning began. I got to say it one more again. He knows the end from the beginning because he predetermined the end before the beginning began. Even when it came to the death of his son... God determined why Jesus would die. You shall call him Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sin. That's why he died. God also predetermined when he would die. Galatians 4 says that Jesus was born at the fullness of time. At the right time, God sent forth his son into the world. And if he was born at the right time, he's going to die at the right time. When did Jesus die? During Passover weekend. What's the big deal about Passover? It was a ceremony commemorating Israel's deliverance from Egypt by the blood of an unblemished lamb. So Jesus died on Passover as our Passover lamb, not figuratively, but literally. So we don't have to trust the symbol anymore. We've got the real thing in his real blood and body that was shed and broken on Calvary for us. <laughs> Passover weekend of all the weekends, God is specific in what he does. So he predetermined why his son would die. He predetermined even when he would die. But let me go a little bit deeper in this. Before we even get to Passover in time, God determined in eternity past, the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. Oh, we can't even go there. But I'm going to try to go there with my little noodle brain. Before Jesus came in time and space, God determined the lamb would die before the world and before humans and before sin came. In other words, God had the solution before there was ever a problem. So again, he didn't react and say, oh, there's a problem. Let me send Jesus. He already knew there was going to be a problem, and he already knew Jesus was going to go. As a matter of fact, Jesus was already slain. That's the mind of God. That's who we serve. That's who we worship. You're not going to get it fully, but get a piece of it by faith. We look through the, the window. It's dim. We don't get it all. 
But man, get enough and hold on to it by faith. And God determined, predetermined how his son would die. God predetermined his son would die by crucifixion. Pastor, how do you know that? Psalm 22 says they're going to look on the one whom they have pierced. And when it came time on the cross to break the bones of Jesus, because what they would do in order to expedite death, because people could hang on there for hours. Jesus hung for six hours on the cross. People could sometimes go a day. And the Romans were so cruel, they were like, we got things to do. So they would go by and they would break people's legs so they could not push up and breathe because everything was so collapsed down. So, so they would you know, be struggling to breathe. But if your legs are broken, you can't push up to breathe and have your lungs expand. So they would break your legs. So the Bible says when they came to Jesus to break his legs, he was already dead. Which means they did not take that mallet to him. Why? Because the Bible says none of his bones would be broken. Which means Jesus is fulfilling prophecy written hundreds of years before in his death. Now that's awesome. So they went on and put the spear in his side just to make sure and out flew, flowed blood and water. But they didn't break his legs. Why? Because you couldn't have a lamb in the symbolic exodus with broken limbs. You couldn't have a lamb that was blind in one eye and limping on three legs. You had to have a good lamb, a male without blemish, no bones broken. The blood of the lamb would have to be shed and smeared over the house. So when Jesus died, he died where his blood was shed, but his bones were not broken. God predetermined that. But not only that, the father says, I'm also going to predetermine where my son's going to be buried. Because if men on earth have it in their heart to predetermine where their sons are going to be buried and, and where the father says, I want to be buried. God says, look, y'all get that from me because I predetermine where my son is going to be buried. Isaiah 53, 9. The New International Version says it very cleanly. It says he, speaking of Jesus, was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Now, Isaiah was written almost a thousand years before Jesus came into the earth. And the prophecy was that he was assigned a grave with the rich in death. Assigned, assigned, that sounds like something predetermined, an assignment that God assigned that his son would be buried with rich people or by rich people. And this prophecy was fulfilled in Matthew chapter 27, verses 57 through 60. I hope you don't mind that I'm turning to Matthew chapter 27. Because one thing you're not going to do is leave here and say, we don't study the Bible at Strong Tower Bible Church. No, 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 no. If you don't want the Bible, you don't want to be here. We, we study the Bible. We don't worship the Bible, but we need the word of God. Matthew 27, verse 57. Now, when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. 
When Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. Fulfillment. Buried with the rich. A rich man who is a closet Christian decides enough is enough. And he comes out of the shadows into the light to represent the light of the world. And he asks Pilate for the body of Jesus. And my question is, why did God want his son buried by a rich man in a new tomb? Why would God prophesy that through Isaiah? What, what's the deal? Because when Jesus came into the world, he came humbly and poor. When Jesus lived his life and did his ministry, he did it humbly and poor. When Jesus died on the cross, he died as a slave, according to Philippians 2, humble and poor. So why not bury him humbly and poorly? I believe God said, that's enough. The mission was accomplished. And uh, I'm going to see that my son is buried like the king that he is. Don't miss that now. God said, okay, we did the humble thing. But now we're going to bless my son in death. Now, 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 the tomb was new, which means nobody else had laid up in there. Now, a week before, Jesus came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey that no one had ever ridden on. Because the donkey rep record represented kingship. Israel, your king is coming to you lowly, riding on a donkey, Zechariah says. So that Jesus is like, I'm not sitting somewhere to represent my authority where some broken down sinful man sat. Because I'm separate, I'm absolute, I'm transcendent, I have all authority. So I'm going to ride somewhere where no man has ever ridden because no man can do what I do because I'm the son of man, son of God. Give me a donkey that's never been ridden on because I'm God like that. And now give me a tomb for my son that nobody else has been in because don't nobody need to be where my son about to be. Because he's separate, distinct, unique. And we're going to honor him now in death. Mm -hmm. So he would be buried like the king that he is. But, but, but dig it though. He wasn't going to stay there long anyway. He, 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 he wasn't going to hang out there for a long time. The Bible says he was there for such a short time, his body did not even suffer decay. Because on the fourth day, that's when you start to stinketh. Isn't that what they said about Lazarus? They're like, Lord, don't move that stone. That's going to be a hum, some funk that's going to come out of that sepulcher now. He funky. <laughs> he started decaying. Jesus got up before his body started to decay. So he wouldn't be there long. That's why the old preacher said it was a borrowed tomb. He lived humble. He died humble. He, but he would be buried in wealth and raised in power. In addition, the Bible says in John chapter 19, verses 41 through 42, that the tomb that Joseph had, not only was it a new tomb, but it was a tomb in a garden. Why would God not only predetermine where his son would be buried, even though it was for just three days, by a rich man, and why would this tomb be in a garden? Perhaps God did it this way to show us that life and beauty will come only because of the resurrection. What's in a garden? Beauty. Life. So what you have there is this irony, death and life. 
It's the same irony you see if you were to open up the Ark of the Covenant where they put inside of it the tablets of Moses as well as the rod of Aaron that budded. Why was that put in there? We know what the tablets represent. They represent that God, Jesus, is the word. But also the, the staff that budded speaks of something that's dead. A staff made of wood is dead. It's not connected to the tree anymore, so it's dead. But stuff budding out of it means that life is coming out of something that's dead. All these symbols in the Bible. So when the Bible says he was buried in a garden, it's just to show you that life is coming out of death because of Jesus Christ. So if you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, you don't have to fear any evil because the one who beat death is with you. And not only that, he's the lily in the valley. He's with you. Oh, so God predetermined how his son would be buried. The patriarchs predetermined where they would be buried. And it's good for us as next week I make these books available to you, which you'll have to sign for. And you'll be able to talk about your burial and your funeral and your insurance and all these things just there. In January, we're going to ask some of our financial experts in the church um, and estate planning folks to just walk us through questions. We're going to have a lawyer there to help us deal with certain things as we talk about wills and estates. Um, we want to have our house in order. Take care of my burial. Uh, we got some people in Strong Tower who come to us from New Orleans. When Hurricane Katrina struck many years ago, and people had to evacuate to live, many people came here to Nashville. And one family in particular, we have Deacon Jesse's family, they came here, they've been with us ever since Katrina. And one thing about New Orleans is that they have a tradition when it comes time to bury people. They have a tradition. Uh, this burial tradition is prototypical of the city's rich culture. There's a boisterous jazz band that leads the funeral procession. And they play music. They play a dirge or a lament going to the grave site. And when they're playing music and they're marching slowly, this music is fused with West African influences, French influences, and African-American influences. The community comes out and they walk somberly and soberly to the grave. And once the body is lowered into the grave, the music changes. The tempo changes. Whereas they went in sad, they leave out rejoicing. And the trumpets start going and the drums start going and people who were marching somberly now start dancing away from the gravesite. They understood something about death. As much as you want to knock New Orleans, they understood something about death. That yes, we grieve, but we grieve with hope. What's the hope? That Jesus defeated death. Which is why when they would say, oh, when the saints go marching in, when the saints go marching in, oh, Lord, I want to be in that number. When the saints go marching in 
And one of the stanzas says this, oh, when the trumpet sounds its call, oh, when the trumpet sounds its call, oh, Lord, I want to be in that number when the saints go marching in. So we can rejoice even when there's sorrow. We have a smile as tears come down our face, as we commit our loved ones to the ground, we know that death is not final for a Christian. It's not a period. It's just a comma leading to an exclamation point and never a question mark. That my loved one is with the Lord and he's going to come back with them and get this body so I can rejoice and I can dance. I can shout. I don't have to stay engrossed by pain. But my pain can be filtered through the hope of the resurrection because somebody got up from his burial site. And then when they saw him, they grabbed a hold of him. And he said, don't hold on to me now. Don't, you got to let me go. I got to go to my father. God, Jesus is our hope. He's all we have. And he gives us hope in the midst of burying our loved ones. Let's stand for prayer. Before I started this series, I did not think about any of this stuff. Kind of, yeah, I had a will. It was old. But I never thought about really who I want to preach my funeral, who, where I want to be buried. I didn't really think about that stuff. But I see from Scripture it's wise and prudent to do so. So next week we're going to make these resources available to you. In January we're going to be there to help any of those, any of us who have questions uh, so that if the Lord should tarry and you transition now, your house will be in order. Next week, we'll talk about take care of my things. Because when Paul, right, he knew he was going to die. Watch, watch this, y'all. What we're going to see next week in 2 Timothy 4. Paul wanted to die. Paul knew he was going to die. And like Biggie Smalls, he was ready to die. But yet. He was still talking about, uh, can y'all get my coat and my books? Go get Mark. So we're going to talk about our things next week. And then we have a sermon we're going to do where we're going to talk about take care of my people. Before Moses died, he made sure that there was a leader in place to lead the people. As a church, we need to have a plan in place. If something should happen to me that's unforeseen, or when I go the way of the earth and pass. The church is not built on Chris Williamson. It's built on Jesus Christ. But we want to make sure there are plans in place so that the church knows what to do when the leader is gone. So that you don't have to start from scratch and invent or be like some churches and you don't have a pastor and it's going on years. It shouldn't be that way. So we're going to talk about that. Are y'all cool with this series? Y'all all right? Y'all all right? All right, now, you got to be, because I'm still preaching a book, still preaching a book. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time of study and just get a little bit of word. But, Lord, the best stuff will happen when we go home and start studying with you on our own. So I pray, Lord, we just won't listen, but there's going to come a time, Lord, where we're going to have to put some action to our faith and work to what we believe. So, Lord, you tell us as leaders to equip the saints. Lord, we're doing our best to equip your people. Um, oh, God, we hate death, but we don't fear it. 
It's a terrible thing. It momentarily separates us from loved ones, but it reminds us that this life is not all there is. But Lord, we want to do a good job with our lives so that if you should tarry, our children and our children's children have received an inheritance from us and we've helped make things a little bit easier for them that they may grieve well and go on with their lives. So thank you, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you'll use this not only for this church, but for friends that we know and family members. Lord, I know family members, uh, church members who are going to share these things with their parents. And we don't need to be afraid to talk about it. Thank you, Lord, that you give us permission to talk about these things and to make plans in advance. And speaking of making plans in advance, thank you, Lord, for knowing us and choosing us before the foundation of the world. Thank you for sending Jesus Christ, your son, to pay for our sin before the foundation of the world, before Adam's sin, you already had the solution. Thank you, O God. And thank you that your son proved his authority through his resurrection. And today we live in him, for him, by him, because of him, and through him. Thank you for Jesus. Now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ever ask or even imagine. And it's according to the power that's working within us. To him be the glory, the majesty, the dominion, and the power in the church now and forevermore. And all of God's people say, amen, amen. If the Lord wills, we'll see you next week. God bless you. Pastor Jerry. What's that? The youth bus? Okay. For those of you who have uh, children, students, the youth bus is about an hour away, okay? Uh, if you go somewhere, come back. <laughs> have a blessed day. <laughs>